The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you're new with us, we started a new book together in uh, 2023. And each week, we've just been walking through it, and we're going to continue that this morning. So 1 Timothy, uh, we're still in chapter 1. Our text is going to be verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. So having said that, let me read it. And then we'll get to work, all right? Says this, now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Woo! There is a lot there. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning um, and first of all, I just want to call out something. That is one long, mega long sentence. How, that is one sentence. I mean, just one never, and it's kind of Paul's thing. So any of Paul's letters that you, that you read, that you study, he does this where he will, like for most authors, a paragraph is like four or five sentences. Three to five, to be fair. Not for Paul. Um, oftentimes, Paul will have one long, never-ending sentence that just goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. If you were his teacher in school, his writing teacher, he would have been uniquely frustrating for you. Um, but this is Paul, and he does that. And our text today is one of those long ones, long sentences. So it's a bit complex. I'm going to do my very best um, here today to kind of put it all together for us as we walk through this. Um, First of all, I want to start with something. How many know that it is possible to use, to take good things, good things, and to use them wrong? How many know that? You can take something really good, use it wrong. I brought something with me. This is random. I never do this. Um, but I'm doing it. This is a fork. This is one of our forks. It's not special. Um, but this fork is great for eating salad. It's fantastic for that. Um, chicken, pasta, you stick it, spin it, you do that, right? Great for these things. Um, so many things. But this is terrible for soup. Uniquely frustrating for soup. Uh, my favorite dish is Penang curry. This would be awful for that. Awful, I don't want that, I don't want that. So a fork is good, um, 
But a fork is also not good when it's used wrong, when it's used in the wrong way, when it's used in the wrong, I mean, for your morning cereal. That's weird. Forks are bad for that. Um, So good things can be used wrong, and it does not mean that the thing itself is bad or wrong. It's the way that we're using it that is bad or wrong. Wrong. The fork is not bad when we're using the fork in the right way, but when we don't, it's terrible. Make sense? All right. We'll start there because um, it's easy to make this mistake without even realizing that we're doing it. Um, We are here at Stone Oak. We are a people of grace. We preach it. We sing it. We stand on it. It's everything. We are saved by it. We are a grace people at Stone Oak Bible Church. We are, and it's awesome. But here's the thing. If we're not careful with that, it can lead us to have kind of an awkward relationship, an uncomfortable, awkward relationship or awkward understanding of what the Bible calls the law. And our text this morning is all about that. It just steps into that awkwardness. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, this text, the right relationship that we should have between the gospel of grace and the law. All right? So let's look at our first verse, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, the law is good. Paul says, we know, we know that the law is good. Like I said, our our text this morning, one long, never-ending sentence. This, though, is the statement, the central statement of our long, never-ending sentence. This statement right here, we know that the law is good. That is our central statement. What I mean by that is everything else that comes after it is going to unpack that, build on it, but that is our ground level. We know that the law is good. It's the heart of our our text. But then wasting no time at all, we get this condition statement. If, if one uses it correctly, we know that the fork is good. If one uses it correctly, we know, on the other hand, The fork is not so good for soup. The reason I bring this up is because already Paul has gotten us to the heart of the issue here in this letter. And the issue is, Paul is pointing to the problem. The problem's not the fork. The problem's the person using the fork in a weird way. That's the problem. To use our text, Paul is showing us the problem is not the law. The problem is the one who is using the law incorrectly and unlawfully. That is the problem. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Then verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Okay, we're going to pause here because this is where it gets um, interesting. Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just. Um, What does this mean? Better question is, is who are these just people walking around that the law is not for? Um, I want to point out what is obvious. 
we know obviously that Paul is not talking about some secret group of people that I've never met, certainly not me, that are just nailing every part of the law and they just got it all together and they're perfect in all their ways. Paul is obviously not talking about those people out there who are just in their own merit and in their own ways. He's not talking about that. How do we know that? Because in other places, let's take Romans 3, there is none that is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, for all, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Um, So who is just? Well, we know it's not those people that are perfect on their own because those people don't exist. This is really important. When Paul uses the word just in our text, what he's talking about, what he's pointing to, are the people who have been justified. Made just. Um, We are talking here about all of those, all of you, all of us who are in Christ. I could go to so many texts here, but I'm going to just pick one because I was already in Romans and it made sense. Uh, Romans 4 gives us a good example of this. Paul in Romans 4 is talking about Abraham, way back in the day, Abraham, and talking about how Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. And um, in Romans 4, toward the end in 22, it says, this is why his faith, that's Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Listen, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Meaning, we are made just, declared just by faith in Christ. And and then Paul adds to this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that is fantastic news, church. When, when, this is so important. So in Christ, although you are a sinner and although you are not perfect on your own doing, in Christ, Scripture tells you that you are perfect, righteous, and just because Jesus Christ was perfect, righteous, and just for you. Justified. Justified. He took your sin that you may be righteous through faith. Um, This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, 5, um, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Paul is laying out here. So church, when you hear Paul in this text say just, he's talking about those who have been justified in Christ, who are in Christ. That's who he's talking about. Um, but then we're left with a little awkward statement that I want to spend some time on. Since he's talking about us in Christ and the just, um, Paul makes this statement. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Okay. Does this mean that as Christians, we can roll down our window and throw out the law? not for you, right? Does this mean that we can just throw it out because now we're in Jesus, right? 
I want to say this a resounding and clear, and I'm going to say it multiple times this morning. No, it's not what it means. It's not what it means. Um, I've said this a lot before, and I think it's good to repeat, but whenever we get to a portion of scripture that might be difficult, one of the best things that you and I can do is to let scripture help us understand scripture. So when we get to this and we see the law not given for the just, what does this mean? It's important for us to look at the whole of scripture and what it teaches us in this. And, and fortunately for today, um, we also have Galatians 5 to help us. You don't need to turn with me here. If you want to, go for it. I'm going to put it on the screen. Um, but in Galatians 5, Paul, same Paul, says this. He says, oh, this is really cool. I'm geeking out that we get to do this. Okay. But if you are led by the Spirit, that means if you're in Christ, this is the just that we're talking about. If you're a Christian, he says, you are not under the law. Well, there it goes. Throw it out the window, right? Eh. Listen to what he says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, <gasps> take a breath, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these in case we missed it. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I'm going to ask, what's he saying here? Don't miss this. Is Paul saying, hey, when you come to Jesus, the law don't matter? Like, who cares what God said about what's right and wrong? Who cares about what he calls sin and what he doesn't? Who cares about what he wants us to do and not do? Throw it all out. Who cares about these things? We are in grace and we're free to sin. If there is any way that you could get that from Galatians 5, you are grossly misreading scripture. It's just impossible. What we see is actually, in fact, the opposite. The complete opposite. And in a nutshell, we're not free to sin. What we see in Galatians is now by the power of Christ, we are now free from sin. That's big. That's really big. In Christ, we no longer have this external pressure. But what Paul says is we have this now internal spirit, the spirit of God indwelling us, producing fruit in us, fruit that he just laid out for us. And and, and what that means is now, brothers, sisters, we care about this all the more. We care about it. I'd like to just be clear. Before you came to Jesus, you didn't struggle with sin. You just sinned. The struggle happens when you are in Christ because we war against it. We push against it. Those who have been crucified or those who are in the flesh are under the law. But in Christ, we have crucified the flesh so that now we war against it. We're no longer under the law. We are in Christ. I'm going to drop a few quotes for us this morning. This is the first one. And I read this from a commentator this week, and I thought it was awesome. So I'm going to share it. Share it with you. He says, in saying that the law was not made for the righteous. He says, Paul was describing believers as the righteous. Committed believers do not need the law to propel them to holy living. They have pleasure in God's law. 
perspective and entered into the sphere in which the promptings of the Holy Spirit spur them, spur them to obedience. So we don't ignore the law of God, but now in Christ, I just got to tell you, you're just not under its penalty anymore. That's awesome. We're indwelled by the Spirit. So this brings me to something really important. It brings me back to the beginning. If the law is good when it's used lawfully, and it's not so good when it's not used lawfully, if the fork is great for salad, but not so great for soup, right? If that's the case, then we need to ask ourselves, how can we as Christians understand and use the law in a way that honors God and in a way that is in accordance with the word of God? That's the question. How can we use the fork the right way? How do we do this? As a believer, how do we do this? Um, I want to give us four words. Um, four words. And, and this is, I don't believe this was original to me, but it's kind of like at some point you steal from other thieves and you can't figure out where it came from. Um, but I'm going to boil it all down to four words. Four words that, that summarizes this well. When we think, how does a believer use the law well? Four words. Four words. Haven't, can't, shouldn't, ought. Okay? Haven't, can't, shouldn't, ought. Let's start with haven't. Um, there's something crazy that happens when we as Christians sit with the law, the word of God. What it does is it reminds us like a mirror of our own sin. It does. It reminds us that we haven't earned righteousness. It reminds us that we haven't done enough. We haven't got a chance. We haven't lived up to the righteous standard of God. God gave you his law to show you you haven't. You haven't done it. Which then leads to our second word. They're, they're close. Can't. You can't. Because not only does it remind us that we haven't earned righteousness, you haven't done enough, you haven't lived up to God's standards. Church, the law reminds us that we can't. We can't earn righteousness. We can't live up to God's standards. We, even on our best days, not even dealing with the bad days, I'm talking your best day, your rock star day, it's not enough and we know it. The law reminds us that we haven't and we can't and that sounds super depressing, except it's not because that is right where the gospel meets us. The good news is not good unless it's set against the backdrop of reality. It meets us there, and when we are reminded that we haven't and we can't, the gospel meets us and reminds us that Jesus can and Jesus has. This is huge. Like, the gospel should not only be a mirror for our sin, but to point us to Jesus, who has accomplished it all, done it all. He's perfect, righteous. He came not to abolish the law, he said, but to fulfill it. We're reminded of our sin and praise God. We're then pointed to Jesus. That's what the law does. Reveals our sin, the haven'ts and the can'ts. Reveals our sin and points us to Jesus. I, I had like 15 different verses and I'm not gonna give them all to you. I'm gonna give you two, okay? Um, real quickly, Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, how's this for clarity? No human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through sin comes what? Or through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. In other words, the law 
shows us our habits and our can'ts. And at the same time, points us to Jesus. Text number two, Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was given, or the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So church, this, meant, this means the law is basically kind of like a mirror to you, showing you all the haven'ts and can'ts, and at the same time pointing us to Jesus, showing us that he can and he has. Incredible. And that leads us to the third. Shouldn't. Um, here's what I mean by this. So in Christ, the law then becomes, um, think of it like a locked door. A locked door. Um, letting us know the heart of our God and helping to restrain us from wandering off into dangerous territory. It's like a locked door. It shows us, in other words, what we shouldn't do and where we shouldn't go. Romans 7 says, what then shall we say? Is the, that the law is sin by no means, yet if it hadn't been for the law, I love this, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shouldn't covet. I love this. It reminds us, it, it points us to the shouldn'ts, what we shouldn't do. It keeps us from wandering and wandering off into things that are dangerous. I have kids, and we all know what that's like. You, when you have kids, you put all those safety locks on everything. It's kind of what the law becomes for us. It's the safety locks that are all over the house reminding us not to hurt ourselves. You shouldn't do that. It's what the law is for us, that we can walk no longer in ignorance, but walk in safety. I'm reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 19. Love David's prayer in Psalm 19, where he, I'm just going to take one verse of it. Um, Psalm 19, 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not have any dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David says, listen, I don't want to be ignorant of the sin in my life. I don't want to be ignorant. I want my path illuminated by the truth of God so I can walk in the light. And that's what God's law does. It serves as a restraint on our lives, reminding us of the things we shouldn't do and where we shouldn't go, giving us his desire for us to live. And again, I want to say this, not as a way for us to save ourselves. We've already said that's a big swing in this over and over. That's not what I'm getting at. But what I am saying is that through the law, we remember we haven't and can't. Jesus can and has. And then we walk in a way, walk in the light where we can avoid some of the danger. We can avoid the wandering off. So we've, we've seen a couple of these words. The law reminds us we haven't and we can't. Um, Christ has and he can. And then the, the law of God helps us not to be ignorant, wander off into danger. Again, you're not saved by your works, but we're at war against sin. And so the law gives us the haven'ts and the can'ts and the shouldn'ts. And then fourth, ought. Ought. Um, the law is a bit like a, a guide for us in our lives. Um, scripture calls it a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Um, the law points out all the ways that we can walk with our God, not from a place of fear. Here's the coolest thing. 
God has laid out before us his, his desire for us that we can walk in a way that brings him pleasure, in a way that glorifies him, what we ought to do. And again, we don't do these things. This is, this is really important. We don't do these things because we're afraid that if we don't, God's going to smite us. We don't do these things so that God would like us more, pick us for his team, and make that other person look bad. No, 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 no. We do this as our way. We, we obey his law, walk in his ways as our way of bringing him great pleasure and glory. And in that, we find that his ways are good. His path is good. And our greatest pleasure in life is when we honor and glorify him in our ways. Just flips it upside down. So the law helps us know what we ought to do in this life. And so bringing this all together, um, here's how we use the fork in the right way as Christians. Here's how we use it in the right way. Here's how we as Christians use the law well. The law helps us remember we haven't and we can't, but Christ can and he has. And from there, the law helps us to walk with Jesus, showing us what we shouldn't and what we ought to do to live a life of godliness and goodness, to grow in Christ. So in our text, when Paul says, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, what he's saying is, in Christ, you're not saved by the law. In Christ, you're not condemned by the law. But in Christ, we are simply reminded of what Christ has accomplished for us and reminds us of the plan of our God for our lives. It's how we approach the law. I told you I had a couple quotes. Quote number two. I think this is the last one, okay? Um, I love this. Robert Jameson says this, and um, this just sums it up so well. But as the justified man often does not give himself up wholly to the inward leading of the Holy Spirit, um, we miss it, right? He says this, he morally needs the outward law to show him his sin and God's requirements. Show us the haven'ts and the can'ts, right? And then listen to what he says. The reason why the Ten Commandments have no power to condemn the Christian, he says, it's not that they have no authority over him. He says this, but because Christ fulfilled them as our surety. That's fantastic. That is so good. I couldn't not give that quote. That is such good news. Because when we use the law to try to save ourselves, when we use the law to try to make ourselves look good, to make others look bad, it's like using the fork for the soup. It does not work. But when we use the law to reveal our sin, to point us to Christ, to remind us that Christ fulfilled it as we walk with him, that's using the fork for the salad. That's good. That's good for us. Oh my goodness. Okay, we need to move on um, to the rest of our verse. So Paul says, the law is not laid down for the just, but, but, then he lists them, okay? Um, who's it for? Who's still under the penalty of the law? Here's what he says. Just read it again. For the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, um, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, uh, for murderers, for sexual immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and again, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Whew. Okay, so 
Who are the just? Well, the just are those who are justified by faith in Christ alone, right? So who are the rest? Who are the others? I'm gonna do my best to summarize this. So what we see here in this text is we see three sets of adjectives and then a whole bunch of commandments, okay? Here's what I mean. Three sets of adjectives and a whole bunch of commandments. Adjective number one. Adjective number one, we see this. Um, For the lawless and disobedient. Adjective number one. These are the people who refuse the law, refuse to listen, ignore it, break it, reject its authority, right? Number one. Adjective number two. We have the ungodly and sinners. Um, These are those who are outwardly disobedient, outwardly reject the law, disregard God's will. They're those ungodly, unruly ones, those hooligans. Adjective number two. Adjective number three, then we have the unholy and the profane. These are those who are, among other things, inwardly broken, who just trample on God's name with no regard and no respect. There's nothing holy, nothing sacred about them. All right, so what we see here in these three adjectives is we see this all-encompassing brokenness and wickedness from the inside out. We see an all-encompassing rebellion where we take this and say, nah, we know better. That's what we see in these adjectives. And then what we see is a long list of sins. And they might sound a little, little uh, random, They might sound a little random at first, but as you look at them, you see how well they mirror the law. I want to point this out. They mirror it really well, specifically the Ten Commandments, specifically Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Look at this. I mean, this is is crazy. So what we see here is we have those who strike their fathers and and mothers. Well, that's a breaking of the Fifth Commandment. Thou shalt honor your father and your mother. Okay, well, what about murderers? That one's kind of obvious. That's a breaking of the sixth commandment, isn't it? That we, we shall not murder. Then we have in verse 10, we see the sexual immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Church, this is a breaking of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a reference to sexual sin where we exchange God's intended design for human sexuality to a design that runs counter saying, you know, nah, we know better. Counter to his ways. Then we see enslavers. This is a weird one, right? Um, This is a reference to slave trading. This is a reference to human trafficking. This is a reference specifically to stealing human beings for profit. That, among other things, is a breaking of the eighth commandment, which says, thou shalt not steal. Take something that is not yours. Then we have those liars and perjurers. Now, that's the ninth commandment. This is the ninth commandment that you shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. So each of these are closely related to the law of God, each of them showing us the ways that we have rejected the law of God in our in our modern life, we've rejected it, showing us the way it's been ignored. And then lastly, Paul just points out and whatever else. So the important thing about this is, is this is not intended to be an all-inclusive list. Where you look at this and be like, whew, didn't call out mine, I'm good. 
It's not an all-inclusive list, and it does not claim to be. Does not claim to be. Not intended to be, because sin is missing the mark of God. It's all that's contrary to the law of God. All. And it's contrary to what Paul calls sound doctrine. Okay, I promise you, because I could preach on this all day long, I'm not going to hash out what we've been walking through the last three weeks. But if you notice, for three weeks in a row, we've been talking about that the gospel and sound doctrine is not for you and I to decide or define on our own. To use the language of 1 Timothy, it's not for you and I to speculate. Instead, what we see is this has been given to us, making us stewards. Making us stewards of the gospel and of sound doctrine. And this is why Paul uses stewardship language here. If you notice, in accordance with the gospel of the the glory of the blessed God, and then listen, with which I have what? I have been entrusted. That is stewardship language, church. We are stewards. Our authority is the word of God. We're entrusted with it. And in this, it tells us how we can know God, how we can be saved, how we can walk with Jesus. It gives us all we need for life and godliness. We have this. It's not for ours to decide. It's for ours to steward. Okay, I said I could preach on this all day. I I, want to bring this because I want to pause here because we've got work to do next week on this. But um, I want to pull out something because I know that for many of us, both in the church and out, um, when we talk about law, you might have a very awkward relationship with it. Um, And I think it's helpful for us to know that that struggle that awkwardness um, is not new and you are not alone. It's not new and you're not alone. Um, I love that we have our kids with us. I made a promise this week on an email that I wasn't gonna be long or boring. So hopefully I'm living up to that, maybe not. Um, But I love that you're in here because one of the most fantastic examples of this is actually in the home with parents and kids. I want to bring this out for all of us as we try to understand this and put all this together. So in my house, there are rules. There are certain things um, in our home. It's just part of being in the Evans household. Uh, Example, no hitting. No hitting. Um, I have three, house full of boys, three of them. And that rule is one of necessity. It is. And and with our boys uh, wrestling, is kind of how we express ourselves. So it's, it's the way we say we're frustrated and mad and angry. And at the same time, it's the way we say, I love you, daddy. It's the same thing. It's just wrestling all the time. So hitting, this no hitting rule, it's really important in our house. But listen, that rule, no hitting. Um, it's not because I hate my kids. It's not. Um, it's not because I want to take away all their fun. It's not. I have that rule in our home because I love them dearly. I have that rule in our home because I want them to grow up to be godly men who know what it's like to control their temper, who know how to feel angry in a healthy way, not go to jail. I want what's best for my boys. That's why that rule exists. And to protect the other boys, by the way. Um, 
Now, here's the thing, though. Um, my boys, that rule, it's not that they need to either obey that so they can earn being a kid, being my son in my home. Like, they better do it so that they can do enough to be my son. They better do it so that they can be an Evans boy. Um, no. Come on now. Um, my boys have these rules in our, in our home because they are my sons, because I love them, and because I want what is best for them. My hope is that they would obey those rules perfectly, um, because they are my sons, because they love me, and because they trust me and know what's best for them. And listen, um, this example is not great because I am an imperfect dad who messes up all the time. I fail, I make mistakes, I sin, but listen, our Heavenly Father is not like me he is perfect. He's a perfect dad who never makes mistakes and never, ever, ever fails. And so like my kids, we're his children. And this means as we think about his law, his word, we can't allow ourselves to run into either of two extremes. Uh, on this hand, we can't allow ourselves to just run over and say, you know, who cares what dad wants? Who cares? Because I'm his son and he'll love me anyway. Who cares? That's awful. If you're a parent, you're like, please no. Um, it's awful. Who cares about his rules? I know I'm not saved by works, so who cares? We can't run this way and just throw the word, the, his word, his law out the window and like we're in charge. Because God's law is love. And we walk in his ways because we love him and we trust him. And as a child, we're not saved by, his, by our obedience. We're saved because Christ was obedient to the point of death on a cross for you. We know that. So we can't run this way and be... What's the word? I said hooligan, a hellion. That's a better word. A little hellion in the hole, right? Can't go this way. We also can't run to the other side and begin to think that somehow your heavenly father likes you or saves you or prefers you because of how well you are behaved. We cannot run that way, church. Because I'm not as bad as those people, I am more obedient than them. Look how good I am. At least I'm better than my brothers. My kids do that a lot. I love it. Um, you know, um, this is what the Pharisees did in the time of Jesus, and it's what every legalist has done from that time on. That we're, we need to understand we are, we are saved by grace through faith, not our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience, his work on our behalf. And so like my kids, um, who are not my kids because their level of obedience, you are a son, a daughter of God, not because of your level of obedience because of Christ, what he has done. Both of these examples, both of these extremes are like getting out this fork and going at your soup. It does not work. It does not work. And as a Christian, the law reminds us that we haven't kept it and that we can't kept it, keep it, but Christ can and he has. The law points us to our sin, points us to Jesus, and then instructs us, giving us the shouldn'ts and the oughts so that we walk with him in goodness and grace. God loves you. And he sent his son to perfectly fulfill the law for you. So that now you are no longer condemned by that law. 
because Christ fulfilled it on your behalf. You have been made perfect. And now by his grace, we have this that shows us how we can know him, how we can walk with him, and we can know his plan and his desire for our lives. Um, Listen, as we finish today, um, I thought it would be really fitting. I read one scripture from David's prayer in Psalms. Um, I would love to finish together by reading more of that together. So I want to invite you, if you would, would you stand with me? As we close our time today, I want to read this verse, this, this psalm over us. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Listen to this, church. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More, desi- more to be desired than they, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Amen. Amen.